This is Jewish Board Talk with Sheree Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. When I reflect back on my show last week, I remember feeling so elated and looking forward to the weekend in Simfostera. It seems like a lifetime ago. It, it seems like the world has actually changed, and the images that were coming out are beyond belief. I'm delighted to have Samuel Hyde, a South African-Israel political researcher and writer at the Jewish People Policy Institute, to update on the situation. Sam, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Uh, Sharice, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a very difficult and painful daily reality for us here in Israel, and I can only assume for those within our community watching from South Africa, you know, as you said, Simchat Torah, the day that this happened, I think will be etched in the minds and souls and hearts of Israelis as a day when many things changed. And, and in many ways, what was on the Friday before the, the Saturday morning is not what will be going forward. Do you think it is a life-changing event? Yeah, I, look, I think, I think it certainly feels that way. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why. So please bear with me because this is like twofold for me. Sure. I think in a sense, and the one is the one is maybe more of a personal feeling, and the other one's more of a broader analysis of the situation. Um, so right now, I think like two things are filling me with immense pride in Israelis and being Israeli. Uh, there's a total mobilization among the public. Blood donations, over 300,000 reserve call-ups, care packages, donations, offers of housing, financial contributions, free medical and psychological assistance um, that is going out to, to just about anyone. Uh, I, have, I have friends who are involved in this. There's countless organizations. But what is amazing to see is that it's the everyday person on the streets. Um and then I also think, uh, oddly enough, something else that fills me with pride in Israelis is we have to remember that half of the ministers in our government have been nowhere to be seen throughout this process. And every single time, there's, I'm sure people have seen the videos, but every single time a government minister shows their face in public, they've been heckled and humiliated by by, by, by the everyday person, by staff. Because I think at the end of the day, the state of Israel, regardless of the administration going forward, it's going to have a crucial task ahead of it to fund, which is fundamentally central to the Zionist vision of the Jewish state. Leadership are going to need to work very hard to restore the sense of security that Israelis have been, have essentially felt has been shattered in the most fundamental sense of the preservation of life. And I think, you know, let's not forget that this comes in the same year that a sense about democracy has been at risk. So it's been an upheaval of a year for us. And I think that this is, you know, if I, if I had to quickly, I'm going to do my best to, to speak about, you know, the analysis side of that. That's my personal feelings on the situation. So again, bear with me. Um, look, I've been a staunch critic of the Netanyahu led administration and I remain as such. And I think when the dust settles, the day of judgment for this government will come. But right now, um, it's amazing to see that there's simply no appetite among Israelis or, and the public for normal politics, neither on the left nor the right. Um, when it comes to the Palestinians, I've equally criticized their obstinacy, their continued obstinacy to accept any peace deal that requires them to reconcile with the existence of a Jewish state in any part of the land. And what I'm seeing in South Africa among, you know, intellectual elites, I recognize this belief among, among these supposed rational people in the West and in South Africa that what is occurring in Israel is 
merely an effort by the Palestinians to end an occupation and achieve self-determination, which which are, after all, rational objectives. These are universal principles that that other rational individuals like themselves can comprehend. Um, however, like many uh, other elite intellectuals before them, they're simply wrong. Um, I think just as in 1948, what we're witnessing today is a, is a war of jihad. Cries of Ibbah al-Yudi, kill, kill the Jews, are the rallying call from Hamas. Calls from Hamas for a day of rage against Jewish communities worldwide. Hundreds of Palestinian protesters chanting gas the Jews in Sydney, Australia, kill the Jews in the streets of Europe. Or, uh, as we saw today at one college uh, in, in America, uh, Intifada, Intifada. So I think to anyone with even a rudimentary understanding of of the history of the Middle East, Jewish or non-Jewish, the Jews have faced oppressive and murderous treatment under Islam for centuries. This is not new. It's just as they did in Europe. And I think what we've seen unfolding is the merging of these two historical realities, the Islamic reality of anti-Semitism and, and, the, and the European reality of anti-Semitism. That's what we've seen unfolding today, a war of jihad against the Jews and a form of Nazism that has seeped, seeped itself uh, very deeply into the Islamic world in the 1930s and the 1940s. And I think Hamas represents a direct continuation of these these two destructive forces. Um, Sam, you are a writer. Are you writing this all down? Because what you're saying is so profound, and I think we need to be able to disseminate this. Uh, I, I suppose at some point I, I have been struggling to write. I'm, you know, obviously, I, as you stated, I work for JPPR, the Jewish People Policy Institute, so I've been having to write and having to work, and that's been, you know, that has been both a savior and incredibly difficult. Mm. Um, it's been a savior in the sense that I feel like you know, I got into this work for the very specific reason that I care about these issues. And and it's allowed me to make um, even the most mean, minor but hopefully meaningful contribution in some capacity, whether it's the writing or, or some sort of engagement. But on the other hand, um, because it's so intense, it has sometimes been 15-hour work days. And it's very difficult to do that and process what, what we're going through on a, on a human level. So we are going to process. So when you leave us, we have psychologists here to pick us all up and make it all better or at least help us deal with it. Sam, um, you spoke firstly on a personal level about how, how divided Israel was. It's never been so divided in its history. And it seems like seemingly almost overnight it united. Is this something that will, will it fracture again as soon as the threat is over? Look, I can't make a prediction on that. What, what I can what I can say is that Israel. I think it was a very common common talking point that Israel has never been as divided as it had been before. But really, what you actually saw when you looked at any of the polls or any of the research that was done when it came to issues of dem- democracy and the judicial overhaul was that a majority of Israelis were against the Netanyahu's administration for judicial overhaul. So, so, so sure, there was a divisive rhetoric in the air among among um government and among supporters of the government and the overhaul but for the most part israelis were remarkably unified in in in, in another way um in the sense of like i said even 55 percent of Likud members were against the the judicial overhaul and that's the largest party and that's leaving out the opposition which represent another 50 percent of the country so you had a majority of the country who was united in their fight for for democracy and against the Jew, the judicial overhaul. But of course, there was a lot of division and there was a lot of um, divisive and uh, populist, essentially, rhetoric going on in the country. Um, 
I don't know. I don't know where, where we're going to head. I know that there is going to be fundamental questions that are going to come up and questions that need to come up uh, because they are a central core essence of the Zionist project, the Zionist movement since, since, since its inception at the first Zionist Congress, which is the security and preservation of life of the Jewish people. And we've seen a failure on the part of our intelligence forces and, and, and the Israeli government itself to deal with this. And, and, you know, I think now is not the time that people are thinking about this, but the time will come, as I said earlier, when the dust settles, people are going to ask, why was it that for the first hour, hour and a half, two hours, there were no military on, on the ground, on the Gaza border? People are going to ask these things. And there are actually answers to this. And I, I don't know if we should go into them at this point. But, you know, the, I can just simply state that 75% of our overall military are deployed in, in, to the West Bank to guard settlements and, 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 um, and settlers. And only 20 to 25% of them are, that are in the West Bank are even engaged in fighting terrorism. So one, one, these questions are going to really be very difficult for Israeli society to face. Uh, but I don't think that they are going to be faced for some time. We have a lot of healing to do. But the, the hammer will eventually fall. We yeah. have a lot of healing to do. I think we're going to take a break there. And when we're going to come back, can we look at a little bit of the implications of this for the region? This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. And I'm talking to Samuel Hyde, South African Israeli political researcher and writer at the Jewish People Policy Institute. Sam, what are the implications of this? Obviously, um, Gaza, Israel's about to go into Gaza if they're not already there. Uh, what, what is the short, medium and long term goal? So, in, where, where can we see ourselves in a few weeks, months time? I mean, it's, it's difficult to judge right now because we're not actually being fed, even in Israel, uh, much information about about things like that. What I can say is that, you know, the first stage of the military strategy was essentially to retake the southern communities from the terrorists that had occupied them, essentially, if you want to phrase it in that way. Um, the second stage is to push back essentially the line of defense, which in military terms means basically push Hamas back further into Gaza. And we've seen that with the bombing. Um, but I think that the Israeli administration has been quite clear from the get go. And I think it's been greenlit by, you know, our allies in, in America and, and certain allies in Europe. Um, there's going to be a ground invasion that I assume will be within the next 48 hours. Um, what we see happening on a, on a, on a long, you know, on a more long-term level, we, we actually don't know. I mean, you know, like, I think it's, it's very unhelpful to, to the, to the psychological state of Israelis to have, you know, certain ministers go, you know, conquer Gaza, wipe Gaza out. Like, it's not helpful to us either to hear that. We don't know. You know, one needs to ask, once you've conquered Gaza, well, then what? What happens after that? Do you reoccupy it as we had before 2005? Do you regime change and install the Palestinian Authority? Or do you annex it and absorb two and a half million population of Palestinians at which, you know, I'm not going to make any generalizations, but... Um, you know, there's many innocent civilians that are in Gaza currently right now also experiencing 
uh, an incredibly traumatic um, event as things unfold. But there are also many people in Gaza who are hostile enemy population, and that's civilians included. So you've got three totally you know, undesirable options. I mean, probably the most desirable out of that would be a reinstallation of the Palestinian Authority. I say the most desirable because it's three very thorny and bad and, and bad uh, circumstances. Um, on a regional level, it's very difficult what we're seeing on a regional level. We're, we're seeing support from the UAE, for example, or we have seen support from the UAE. Um, I, I was hoping on the one hand that the international community, or at least the United Nations, which has proven itself to be even more of a sham organization than it was before, would recognize finally the, the, the weight of the circumstance and the necessity of a ground invasion and would set up some sort of humanitarian corridor for Palestinian civilians through Egypt. But Egypt has locked its borders, which is maybe indicative in and of itself, right? So I think that we are in for an un, a continued unprecedented incident that I don't think is going to let up for at least a month. Um, things are heating up ever so slightly day by day on the northern border. We know that Israel has militarily weakened a lot of Hamas's capabilities, but is nowhere near Um achieving its objectives so far or the stated objectives that we are understanding at least. Um, and, and, and those objectives in which they're speaking about require ground invasion, which requires a significant risk to the, to the lives of us, our soldiers, many of whom are friends of mine that are on the border right now. And that, that's also another thing to, um, okay. to comprehend, you know, we all will have people in this. I, I knew people that were at the music festival, the Nova music festival and, people who are who are missing or have been missing and we all know someone if we don't know someone directly that has been directly impacted by this we know someone who has someone close to them because Israel's a very small country in that regard so it's difficult to comprehend on on a on a regional level sorry i want to, i do want to get to your question i'm trying to keep no, it's myself okay. no it's okay it's okay we're, we're... But, um, on a regional level it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out um I actually five months ago did an interview on Israeli news and I posited, uh, which I'm sorry to say that I did, that within the near future, there would be some sort of attempt to ignite a regional war by Hamas, uh, by Iranian proxies, Hamas and Hezbollah. And I think that that's what we're seeing now. But the, the, you know, I said, I said back then there was no doubt that they would love to wage the war and there's no doubt that they probably would wage the war. The questions that we need to essentially ask ourselves is, do they have, as they did in 1948, let's say, the allyship among the rest of the Arab world? And I think my simple answer to that is actually no. I think that Israel since then has broken the pan-Arab front against it. And I don't think countries like Morocco, let's say, or countries like the UAE, places in the Gulf are... um are, are have any interest in engaging in a regional conflict of any kind, regardless of the circumstances. So, you know, that, that full-scale regional war that I think a lot of people are fearing is very unlikely. Um, and I think that that is, but, but that fear is also very reasonable and very realistic, which is precisely why America has sent, um, has sent tactical, tactical weapons and shipments that are basically staring down Hezbollah. 
Uh, and, and apparently I heard yesterday that so has Britain. So everyone's very, very rightful to be, uh, you know, aware of that and, and, and fearful of that. I do think that there's a possibility of such a thing occurring. I can't rule anything out, but I don't think they certainly won't get away with it. Let me put it that way. Uh, you spoke also about uh, securing Israel. Are we, uh, yeah. and this is what we're going to discuss soon is the images of the babies of women being raped. I can't even talk about it, okay? But is still more being uncovered? And is Israel uh, is, is Israel proper safe? I certainly don't feel safe. Okay. Uh, I think that we, I think that our that our military have um, have done a sufficient job over the last few days at securing um, the south, at least the border communities. This is obviously post the massacre. Um, we, we, there was reports, I think, this morning or late last night of terrorists infiltrating through Gaza again. So mm. this is not, you know, it wasn't many of them, but, but this is still ongoing in the sense of an on-the-ground infiltration from Gaza. Uh, this, you know, it's still happening. There's been occurrences of that on, on the northern border from Hezbollah operatives as well. Um, I don't think anyone feels safe. I mean, I've been in a bomb shelter you know, multiple times a day, every day. I was actually, at, I was actually, I ran out with a friend the other night, just to give you a little bit of the sense of, of, of personal security that I have. We had not had rocket fire for about like three hours. And we were like, look, there's speak, talk about like a total lockdown and everything. We need to run and get groceries. And we ran five minutes down the house, down the road, excuse me. And um, while we were paying, the siren went off and we had to run into a, 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 the apartment next door and hide in the stairwell because we didn't know where the bomb shelter was, for example. And um, the rocket hit a, a few hundred meters down the road. And I can't tell you that the building that we were sitting in shook mm. and moved. Mm. I mean, I knew that it was right around the corner from where we were. So I don't think anyone feels safe. I don't think it's possible to feel safe right now. Um, and I think that that is going to be a crucial task of not only our military, but our leadership going forward. And it's going to take not weeks, possibly not months, possibly even years to heal the Israeli psyche wow. from such a tragic event. Okay. And that exact point, um, Sam, in the studio, I have David Abramovitz and Karen Marcus. Karen is a social worker and therapist and... David, you are a clinical psychologist. Both of them have been taking copious notes and uh, looking very concerned and worried and empathetic. Thank you to both of you for coming in. And, um, I mean, we've heard Sam's fear. Can I call it that, Sam? Fear and and anxiousness. And we in South Africa, I think, have secondary trauma, if not mm. primary trauma. And I wonder if you could kind of... Give us a little bit of advice or thoughts or whatever your thinking is. And just before I let you talk, I just want to also congratulate the Jewish schools for identifying this need among their kiddies. But it's not only among the kiddies, it's all of us. So, um, David and Karen. Yeah. No, I think the first thing to say is, and just listening to Sam talking, it's, it's really about... Um, having one safe place, one, the, the consistency and predictability of your life shattered. So it's almost like I, I maybe using the analogy of being attacked, God forbid, at home. You know, this is a place you go to where you feel safe, where you, where, where you put your feet up, where you consistently feel and have experienced some, some degree of safety. 
Now, I mean, as Sam speaks, um, and the word has been used so much, it's unprecedented. Mm. We've never experienced this before. Um, and so, and so it's uncharted ground. And I think for me, people are feeling completely out of control and they're not feeling, as Sam said, they, you know, they're not feeling safe. They, they're not feeling secure. Um, and understandably are presenting with all the symptoms one would expect to, ex- to experience under these circumstances when one is experiencing PTSD. So, so it's absolutely, it is unprecedented and people are trying to make sense of it. And are trying to take control in in ways that they feel they can, and I think that's really what's you know what's happening at the moment is that um, people are coming to terms with the fact that, as Sam said, um, and I think for Jews in Israel and certainly for Jews all over the world, that this is unprecedented and things have changed now. And and I agree with Sam that it's just like in a trauma that would happen, uh, uh, you know, of any kind that it's going to take. Um, a, a good amount of time to regain a sense of control, a, a, a regain a sense of safety in in one's world, and certainly that's the case it seems in Israel at the moment. Karen, thank you, um, Sam. Thank you. I sit here and I think my face said it all while you were speaking. Is that we hear the horror of what you are seeing and hearing and feeling there in Israel and. As indirect as we are because we're not there, there's a part of each of us that just feels so, so there, and yet we can't imagine what it must be like right now to be there. Um, while you were speaking, so many ideas came to mind also of, you know, you spoke of the, that unknown sense of how, how and when, how does this end, what does that end look like? And being a logotherapist is one, I always fall back on what Viktor Frankl said, he said the soldiers that mentally survived the war were the ones that could see an end, they knew they could see it ending. And I think that's what's so difficult in this is that one wants to see an ending. That's what we're praying for and hoping for. But right now we can't. It's so hard to see that, and it's so hard to see what that ending is going to look like. And I think that's what makes the psyche feel so frightened at a time like this is that we know it will end, and please God it will end, but we don't know what that's going to look like. You know, sorry, Karen. No, 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 Karen. You also, we used the word shattered earlier, and so much of what we work with here is almost like a shattered, a shattered belief syndrome, if we can call it that, of almost coming to a place in life where we feel safe. We, we know the threat, but somehow we feel irrespective of threat. We feel that we know our threat. We feel guarded and we feel safe. And suddenly what happened on the weekend, which was just beyond catastrophic, shattered our belief about life, our life, life in Israel, life as an Israeli, as someone who, and I, I can only know for us also, we're all sitting here with a shattered belief about how safe are we? What, what is the world about? How can human beings and go through what they're going through and impose on others? That that's such a huge thing is to sit in a place of, of a shattered belief because we almost and so quickly need to redefine then our sense of life, our faith in life, faith in people, humanity, God, armies. We are in such a difficult space psychologically of trying to, in, if we could say, make sense of what is going on in the world around us? Um, yeah. You know, I was just going to say, when I was young, you know, the, the slogan, whatever you want to call it, for, for Zionists is if um, we put down our arms, there'll be no Israel. If they put down their arms, there'll be peace or whatever. I'm misphrasing mm-hmm. it. And then the images, I think you have to deal with the images mm-hmm. that have come out from the second it arrived with when we saw tanks of Hamas shooting, firing, till the images until today are babies. Can you help us with that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important to, to, and we'd realize we are living in a different world with technology. 
And, um, you know, I've, I've mentioned before, you know, who are the reporters? Who's first on the scene? And it's actually not, you know, CNN mm. or, uh, you know, or BBC. It's actually the person being perpetrated or the perpetrator. And this is going straight onto Instagram, going straight onto TikTok, onto, onto Facebook. So these are uncensored pictures. Mm. So, so we are so much, we are, we're vulnerable and, and adults are vulnerable. We always kind of talk about our kids so much, but our adults are just as vulnerable to, to go onto the sites and be literally traumatized by these absolutely overwhelming images and I think it's so important that we talk about that that you know for so long we've had this you know dialogue of and conversation and this dilemma on how we help to you know how we take control of what we consume online and I think for me this tragedy this absolutely terrible event um, might be the, the catalyst that we can use to really start being more conscious of what we are looking at and really I mean I think the question really is because I think, you know, being Jewish, we identify so much with what's happening in Israel. And I think, um, you know, it's not, it's not just a, a war happening somewhere else. I think we all know someone or someone who's, who's, you know, we connected to people who have been affected, uh, who are fighting, who are in the army. And that makes it really close to home. And I think on some level that makes us feel like we need to, in a way, unconsciously feel the pain as well and be there in Israel and, and suffer with the people of Israel. But I think, of course, when I'm saying it's so important not to put our heads in the sand. We need to really be aware of what's happening. But I think the question, I think, which is so important to ask ourselves is by being on social media all the time, by having this constant news feed, having the TV on all the time, are we really helping the people of Israel and are we really helping ourselves? Mm. And, I th and, and I think we do that in order to try and be in control. But I do think for me it's a maladaptive way, you know, by, by being up to date with the latest news. But I think rather to think about what, what can we control in a positive way. And uh, our community is fantastic and they are doing the, those kind of things and, and asking those kind of questions. Like I know at the schools, for example, the kids are writing letters to soldiers, mm. their care packages being sent, um, their ideas of sending equipment to, you know, to Israel. And I think those are the ways that really will help um, our psyche um, to, to, to feel like we are contributing but we're doing something that we can control in a positive way rather than just absorbing all this all, you know, these traumatic images which just overwhelm us Karen? Yeah, thank you Dave um, healing images I think that's going to be a big theme that's going to come out of this on so many levels is mm. because we can avoid future images but we can't erase what we've seen mm. and sometimes images are going to pop up when we're not expecting it and they are absolutely intrusive to our psyche intrusive to our humanness that we need to really focus on how do we heal images and an image I, I used the idea the other night on the webinar that we're not those doodle boards that we grew up with as kids we can't just swipe left and that little image kind of erases unfortunately be the old doodle boards where there's still the little black pixels remain and I think for years to come we're going to we're going to need to focus on that and if I can just share the how do we focus on that is to say is find a safe place and that's hard because of the vicarious trauma is we often don't want to tell the next person what we saw because we know that as horrific it is for us to have seen it we don't almost want to impose that on somebody else but maybe we need to have healing circles of people who who we can just share with and say what we saw in that image and 
we need to talk it out. We need to, even if you can't talk it out, find a way of externalizing it. Is do rituals around the image that you saw. Is create an alternative, like almost look for it, almost like the picture behind the picture. And again, there's that magnificent quote by Fred Rogers where he wrote children's books and children's movies. And he said his mom would say to him, if you see scary things on TV, always look for the helper. And I think that maybe that's the challenge also. Is we're gonna, we can't erase, but maybe we can see the picture behind, inside of, and next to. But for now, right now, we are not seeing that. We are just seeing something that is inconceivable and at times incomprehensible to our ability to make sense of. The barbarity. Yeah. Mm. I think, you know, you speak, we identify, um, I, I identify with pain, okay? And I, I, we, we're going to go into a break in one minute. But a friend of mine who works with ISIS in Mozambique sent me a clip. I didn't know what it was. Mm. And I opened it and I was closed within a second because it was beyond horrific. Okay. Mm. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but it was awful. And you think, how can somebody be so barbaric? Mm. And then you, you see it again and again and again. And the, the visuals are coming out more and more and more. And I don't know how much we can take, but uh, Craig is suggesting we take a break. But just before we take that break. This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. I'm talking to Samuel Hyde, South African-Israeli political researcher and writer at the Jewish People Policy Institute, who is based in Israel, as well as psychologist David Abramson and social worker Karen Marcus. Sam, you want to share a story? Uh, yeah, well, firstly, I want to say thank you to to your two guests over there, they, the empathy, I think, that's just resonating from their voices is quite remarkable. Um, I think, like, just to just to give, an un, like, a little bit of an understanding in such a small way of what Israelis are experiencing on, uh, nearly on an hourly basis, on Monday morning, the Jewish People Policy Institute, we reconvene for our first team meeting um, post the war. And within the first two minutes of the meeting, a man burst into tears, one of my, one of the colleagues. And he put the phone down and we received a message about two minutes later that his son had been killed in battle. Mm. And I'm not kidding, this meeting was a half an hour. Five minutes before the end of the meeting, one of the other colleagues all of a sudden just put the phone down mid-talk. Mid and... We received another message and he had taken in a lone soldier just, just about two weeks before all this broke out. And the lone soldier had been kidnapped and taken captive to, um, to Gaza. So I think that that is like just that little story is just something that every Israeli is dealing with on an hourly basis. Mm. It is so overwhelming. It is unbelievable. You're just hearing these stories everywhere. And um, and what's so difficult, I, I sorry, I, I don't want to like take up too much time, mm. but what I heard was about, you know, the images, like how do we discuss these images? I think what's so difficult for us here in Israel is, for example, I'm staying with my two best friends right now. Uh, we're all together. But what's so difficult is we're going through this together. We are all experiencing this. So when I see an image that is horrific or a video that is horrific, we can't just speak about it to each other. We have to say, listen, I've seen something. You cannot, cannot talk about it. Mm -hmm. 
because that person is going through this just as much as you are. And you have to be aware that they might not be in the space in that current moment to be able to comprehend, let's say, the images of babies, which we saw. Right. So it's very difficult to to balance that being there for each other, but also recognizing that everyone has their moments where they actually cannot intake this information and trying to find the balance between how to how to be there for each other, but also how to respect each other in that, in that regard. Yeah, D- David, it's it's such an important um, point um, because I think I think we we inherently want to help other people and we want to be there for other people. Um, but I think the point that Sam's making is so important that um, if we do feel, firstly, that we've got resources to to first ask, we do, we often wonder what we can do. To help, and we don't ask the most important question: is what can I? What What do you need? And I think that's a very important question when you do feel like you do have resources. But as Sam said, I think so, at times you don't feel like you do have resources, and I think it's important to be. And this word has been used for years now in psychology, but it's it's really important. Mindful, just to be really mindful of how you're feeling, and. And then being aware of how other people are feeling. And I think we really need to be sensitive around that. And if you don't have the resources to, to, to make it clear that you're not, you're not wanting to hear, or you're not in the space to hear about more, more about the war, more about these images and to respect it. But there will be, to find that there will be people around you who, who do have those resources. And so find those people and we'll all go through ups and downs and times where we feel resilient and times where we feel um, you know, overwhelmed, but it really is about finding that person who, if you feel like you need to speak, if you need to verbalize, who, who does in that moment, in that space of time, have those resources. And there, and there are people, even if it's not friends or family. I know in South Africa, we're blessed with, um, with amazing helplines, um, uh, and, and helplines in the Jewish community. So I would appeal to people not to, not to hold back because when, if they do need to talk, it's so important. And I think for me, in our day and age, it's all about, you know, you know, I'm going to use the word tactless. You know, if you can't see it, then what is it? But just the power of talking, the power of being heard is, is immeasurable. And I know it, gets, it goes against the grain of our, you know, of our daily kind of lives. You know, we, we have to, it has to be seen. It has to be felt. It has to be, what's the solution? Give me an answer. How do I make myself happy? How do I make this? Just talking. And listening is 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 the cure, and it's 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 so so powerful. Okay. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, and I think and thank you, Sam. Is you know what you also speak to in in all of this also is to all know what our boundaries are and what at any moment what we have capacity for and honouring that and hearing it is. I was chatting to someone earlier also who said they can't look at their they can't look at their phone and and I said and that's okay you know what right now you have capacity for and and I love also what you're saying is sometimes you just need to ask and say can I share this with you and if the person feels that they're not in a position is to be honest enough to say I don't have capacity for that right now but it is there's a lot that we there's a lot that's in common and there's a lot of shared experience but there's also the unique individual and very personal experience in all of this and we all everybody's so different right now and it's um yeah it's how do we hold the, the collective but also hold the individual and hold the stuff that's internal external it's a lot it's a lot and yeah we feel and uh, craig is indicating another ad break i can't mm-hmm. believe it but um We've just got a, 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 a SMS from a psychologist saying 
we're here to help. And um, I know I have also received a lot of calls from psychologists that are saying we are available to the community and um, we are thinking seriously of setting up a hotline mm -hmm. for our community. Um, maybe we can, after the break, talk about primary and secondary trauma because I, I'm beginning to feel it's becoming blurred as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. This is Jewish Board Talk with Cherie Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. I'm talking to Samuel Hyde, a South African-Israeli political research and writer at the Jewish People Policy Institute, as well as psychologist David Abramson and a social worker, Karen Marcus. Can we talk a little bit about primary and secondary trauma and does it blur? Well, I think, I think it does blur now. You know, as we were saying um, before... You know, there, there was this theory, we spoke about this the other night, it's called the, the bullseye theory, and it, it kind of went along the lines of if in the middle of the dartboard is the bullseye, and if that's where the trauma occurs, you know, the closer you are to the bullseye, the, the more um, post-traumatic stress or features of post-traumatic stress you theoretically would have. And as we've seen with social media, that's that just blows things out of the water completely because actually things that are being posted – are not censored, and you actually, when you click on those videos, you look at those images, you are seeing what the perpetrator saw, or you are mm. seeing. So, so this idea of, you know, you say, you know, uh, you know, vicarious traumatization, mm. it's really getting very, very blurred um, in traumatology. Exactly at what stage you're going to feel, um, you know, trauma, or at what stage you're going to develop post-traumatic stress mm. disorder. Um, so, so it is, it's very, very blurred, the primary and secondary. So I think you're finding a lot of people who are, you know, kind of being, and I think for me there's a couple of things that, you know, we need to take into, it, it will keep in mind when we think about who's more susceptible mm. to, to be, mm. well, to develop post-traumatic stress disorder, and we can talk about that. But I do think for me those, you know, those theories that are, are, have been really blurred now because of, um, social media and how quickly and easily those visuals are available. Okay. I think Dave, yeah, I don't, I think Dave has explained it that before it was much more cut and dry. We could mm. clearly identify types of trauma and I think where we hold at the moment with this is there's certainly an absolute blurring of those lines. But what we do know is the world, us, the community, the countries are in a ongoing state of trauma and there's something so prolonged in mm. our trauma right now because it's, it's not ceasing, there's no end, there's no, it's just repetitive, it's ongoing, it's collective, it's intergenerational, it's mm. across boundaries, mm. countries, oceans, mm. that we just, let's just mm. speak to trauma, because even if we're not in Israel now, we are being filtered with so much, we all have people here, I have so many family members who are there that it's so hard to even define. I'd like to ask you about anger, because I think there's a lot of anger in the community and I'm worried a lot of it is misplaced. Can you give some help or suggestions to our community in terms of dealing with that anger? Sure. It's um, anger is big right now. Anger is very misplaced, displaced. We're not sure where to place it. We're scared to place it sometimes where we want to because that opens up inside of us another whole can of psychic psyche worms. So there's, it's often being projected in the wrong places. Interestingly, in my therapy practices, we could come up between my client base here and and Israel and abroad is. Anger, and it's uh, in a lot of the sessions, it was 
I can hear just rage and mm. anger, but you've got nowhere to put it. People mm. don't know where to put that anger right now, but it's real. It's real and it's there and we're feeling it. And I think sometimes it's okay to just name it, own it, recognize it and find a healthy, constructive place for it. And I think sometimes our anger wants answers. Um, Sam, you spoke of this right at the beginning is answers and the whys. And right now, as you said, is that's not the time for that, but at the same time, what we need to do is find a place for for anger, find a place, yeah, for, and really just, yeah, I think regulate that and find a place and talk it out. Be mindful. And I think also just to add to that, it's just to say that we know that behind anger is vulnerability. Mm. We know mm-hmm. that when someone cuts us off in traffic, and I know it's a... <laughs> really not comparable, mm. but 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 just mm. to use the analogy, when someone cuts us off in traffic, um, and we say, or we cut someone off, and we say sorry, mm. another person says, don't worry about it. We know that that person is doing okay in life generally. Mm. But if, if you cut someone off and you say sorry, and the other person gets out of their car and wants to, <laughs> you, yeah. you know that nine out of ten times this person has got something on them or something that's worrying them. And I think for me, just to acknowledge that it's okay to normalize that anger. It's okay to be angry. We need to be. Angry right now But also understand That behind that anger Is a deep, deep, deep hurt That we're feeling Can I make one more comment? Sorry Last comment goes to Karen Thank you Not the last, last Um, We also know that Anger is a huge part of grief And what we are feeling right now As a country A collective Is incredible amount of grief And anger is a huge part Of our grieving process That it's It's Yeah, we need to We really need to To give a lot of thought And careful Careful care and honoring to our to our emotions and our anger and that and each other's. Thank you very much for that, and thank you for all of you for coming in and Sam for being available. And I think this is a conversation we have to pick up again, um, not next week, but certainly soon. And just Sam, thanks so much for your insights, and same like to you guys. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you to all of you for joining me. Sure. Um, if there's anything like comment on you, you're always welcome to send me an email. Otherwise, I wish you all Shabbat Shalom.